Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 558 for the 3rd of September, 2017. Photographs lie. The malicious ones are unethical, but sometimes they're just gentle fibs or changes made in the pursuit of artistic vision. Those are fine, and we'll look at a tool designed to enhance the truth. Would you buy a thumb drive with 16 built-in slots for micro SD cards? Do that, and you can carry 2 terabytes of data in your pocket. In short circuits, there's a new toll-free area code, and scammers are all over it. But now they also make calls that look like they come from local numbers. We are surrounded by cameras these days. They watch every move. But are we safer? There's no clear-cut answer, and a New York attorney has some worthwhile thoughts on the subject. In spare parts, only on the website, Malwarebytes comes to the Mac just in time because more crooks are targeting Macs. Toyota wants to connect your car to everything, and the company has a new division that's working on it. And NASA's live streaming of the recent solar eclipse was a record breaker for internet streaming. I decided to call this section Lying with Landscape Pro 2. It's okay if you do it honestly. Now that title is intentionally provocative, so it can address a concern that many people, including me, have about photography today. Saying the camera never lies has been less than entirely true from the beginning. But today, image modification is easier than ever, and ethical considerations get mixed into our considerations. Before getting to Landscape Pro's new version, let's take a look at the history of photography. Not all the way back to the beginning, but maybe to about the 1860s. Matthew Brady photographed Civil War scenes. Because of the equipment available, pictures of active battles were impossible, so the scenes are mainly of stiffly posed soldiers or the dead on battlefields. Those images are considered to be true historic records. But even then, the image was selectively captured. Brady and his crew chose the views and the camera position. In some cases, multiple images were combined. This is described in a 2012 Daily Mail article. There's a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. The Soviets were the 20th century champions of photo manipulation. As people fell out of favor with Stalin, they were deleted from photographs by artists who used scalpels to remove the offending person and airbrushes to blend multiple images together. In those days, that was a lot of work. Today, this kind of photo fakery is easy. Anybody can do it. Sometimes it's harmless. A few people would object to combining parts of two or more pictures of a family group to produce a single image in which everyone is smiling. But when images are manipulated to lie about someone, as is frequently done by political partisans, the person doing the manipulation is on the wrong side of a very clear ethical line. Landscape Pro. This is a program that can be used to make wholesale changes to photographs. Although it's most useful for landscape images, and hence the name, it can also be used to modify images containing people. 
A bland sky can be replaced with a dramatic one, for example. What are the ethics here? Well, maybe it comes down to intended use. If a photograph I take while on vacation has a boring sky and I replace it with a more dramatic sky, what harm have I done? This is an artistic use of the tool, and just as a painter doesn't have to replicate a scene exactly, these photographic tools can be ethically used for artistic purposes. But how ethical would it be for someone to use photographic manipulation to change the appearance of a polluted river from brown sludge to clear blue? So, with ethics in mind, let's see what the updated version of Landscape Pro can do. I started with a picture of Ohio taken from across the Ohio River in Wheeling, West Virginia. The day was a little hazy, the sky was very bland. Now, this is by no means an award-winning photograph. After all, it was taken from a cemetery. Nevertheless, it can be improved, and Landscape Pro starts by explaining how to label the various parts of the image. Check out the images on the TechBiter Worldwide website. It's a simple image with just a sky, trees, and ground. The concept of labels is unique to Landscape Pro, and once you've applied the labels, Landscape Pro does all the heavy lifting by creating the masks. In this case, it colored the masks red for the sky, green for the trees, and blue for the ground. The color really doesn't make any difference. Overall, the selection is surprisingly good. The exceptions are in the fringe-like parts of the trees, along the line between the sky and the trees, and the base of a tree that's in the foreground. So once Landscape Pro has created the selections and masked them, you're provided tools that can be used to modify the selections. The most difficult correction involved the tree. It's on the left-hand side of the image, where the sky shows through the leaves. After getting the masking the way I wanted it and making some adjustments to the foreground, I wanted to modify the sky. Replacing the sky with an overly dramatic sky would clearly be fake. So I selected a sky with a few puffy white clouds and added a bit of haze so the sky would match the overall atmospheric conditions. Check out the before and after views on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The before view, the sky is bland, not much detail in the foreground trees, and the trees across the river in Ohio are unnecessarily dark. The view after manipulation is significantly different. Actually, there's quite a bit more haze in the background now, and that's intentional. In this case, that makes the trees on the Ohio side a little bit brighter. There's also more detail in the trees and grass in the foreground. But the most significant improvement is the sky. It's a natural sky, exactly what you might expect to see in this part of the country. This little exercise just touches on the basics of what Landscape Pro can do, so I included a brief two-minute tutorial from the developers. Landscape Pro can also be connected to Adobe Lightroom so that the initial work can be done there, and then the heavy-duty masking that you might otherwise send to Photoshop can be handled instead by Landscape Pro. Lightroom makes a copy of the image, passes it to Landscape Pro, and then receives the edited copy back. If you still want to do some pixel-level editing, Lightroom can then pass the edited image from Landscape Pro over to Photoshop. But I also wanted to include an example of how not to use Landscape Pro. Never say never. That's a pretty good adage. But I can think of few times when you might want to do something like what I have shown in How Not to Use Landscape Pro, even though the program makes it pretty easy. I started with a picture of the Franklin Park Conservatory, a very bland sky that could use some help. 
but the example after image isn't helping. I placed a very dramatic sky behind the building. In that image with the dramatic sky, one thing is very clear. The sun behind the building is low in the sky. It's a sunrise or sunset picture. And yet the people in the foreground, well, they're casting relatively short shadows toward the right side of the image. So the sun is fairly high in the sky and on the left, not behind the building. And that sky? Oh, <laughs> that's just completely wrong for the image. Now, there actually is a good time to do something like this. And here it is. It's when you're creating an image that you want to use to explain why someone should never do anything like this. Well, the bottom line for Landscape Pro is five cats. When you want to improve a landscape picture, just reach for Landscape Pro. Version 2 of the application extends and improves on the initial release. The masking tools simplify the most complex parts of the operation, and the extensive set of options for each masked area makes it possible to refine images very quickly. You'll find additional details on the Landscape Pro website, the link from the TechBiter Worldwide website, and be sure to check out the free trial version. Have you ever seen anything that appears initially to be an absolutely brilliant invention? I thought about it for a little while and then decided, I probably don't need that. Here's an example. How many flash drives do you have around the house? I still have one that holds just 64 megabytes of data. That's from when thumb drives were being introduced by an Israeli company. At PC Expo back in the late 1990s, the company was handing out 16 megabyte thumb drives. For some reason, the one they gave me was 64 megabytes, and it still works. I know that because I plugged it in while I was working on this part of the podcast. Now think about that for a moment. 64 megabytes. That's enough for a couple of high-resolution images from a digital camera today. In the late 1990s, 64 megabytes was huge. It was the equivalent of 45 of those plastic case floppy disks that weren't really very floppy. Today, you couldn't give away thumb drives that small. You can buy 4 gigabyte thumb drives with your logo on them for less than $5 if you buy a 1,000 of them. But even if you buy just 25 to hand out to your best customers, they're still only $7.50. Well, now some flash drive manufacturers think we'll be willing to buy expandable USB drives. My primary question is why? Now, the idea seems to be a thumb drive that has micro SD slots. In fact, I have something very similar. There's a USB plug on one end, a mini USB plug on the other, an SD slot on one side, and a micro SD slot on the other. It's a card reader. I can use it with memory cards from a digital camera. But if I need another standard thumb drive, why wouldn't I just buy one that isn't expandable? They're priced from about 15 bucks and up, sometimes way up. That depends on the size of the device and its speed. A card reader is a necessity if you have a device that uses SD or micro SD cards. Some cameras and other devices can be connected to a computer, but they often lag behind with USB 2 technology, while card readers commonly are faster USB 3 devices. Few people would consider it reasonable to insert a memory card into one of these readers and then use it like a flash drive. 
An expandable thumb drive that accepts micro SD cards seems to me like trouble looking for a place to happen. Consider what could go wrong. Thumb drives are small enough already. I've lost at least one over the years, and I'm pretty careful about stuff like that. But now I'd have two options. I could lose the entire thumb drive, or I could lose the micro SD card, which is about the size of a fingernail. The design does include a slide-off cover, so that individual cards won't fall out and get lost, though. That's right, cards. Plural. The Vast Stick has multiple slots, so you could add 16 128-gigabyte microSD cards and thereby create a 2-terabyte thumb drive. Who needs to carry around that much storage? And instead of having just one set of contacts that could go bad, now there are several. The USB contacts that connect the thing to whatever device you want to use it with and those that link the micro SD card to the expandable drive. So I return to my primary question, why? These aren't shipping yet, but if you'd like to get in line for when they do at the end of the month, you'll find information on the VAST website. There is a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. In short circuits, phone scammers have a new area code, yours. The creeps who operate robocall operations are always looking for a way to get past our defenses. They can fake just about any number they want. So not long ago, calls started appearing to come from my exchange. Starting a week or so ago, they started using what I thought was a phony toll-free area code. Let's get into that a little deeper. Let's say my area code is 614, which it is. And let's say I'm in the 888 exchange, which I'm not, but it's close. So my phone number might be 614-888-1234. That isn't my number. But scammers would start displaying the calling number as 614-888-something, where something is anything from all zeros to all nines. That would give them 10,000 possible numbers that would appear to be coming from my local exchange. I could never block all of those numbers, so I've simply started blocking all calls from numbers that begin with the area code and exchange I'm in, and then unblocking the few numbers in the exchange that represent legitimate callers I know. No sooner had I fixed that problem than calls started coming in from area code 833. Until June, that area code wasn't valid, but then it was added as a new toll-free area, along with 800, 888-877-866-855 and 844. I'm beginning to see a pattern here. The quantity of calls has been relatively small so far, just two or three per day, but I've started blocking all calls from 833, and I think I'll block all of the other toll-free area codes too. If somebody wants to call me, they can use a number with an area code that tells me where they are. Otherwise, I feel no obligation to answer. Indeed, I generally won't answer a call that comes from a number I don't recognize. The call will go to voicemail, and any legitimate caller will leave a message. The October issue of Consumer Reports addresses the issue and says the Federal Communications Commission is considering a proposal that would strengthen a phone company's ability to block spoofed numbers. Considering? 
This is a no-brainer. Of course telephone companies should be able to block spoofed numbers. No honest organization would ever engage in this dishonest practice. What is there to discuss or debate? If you'd like to encourage the FCC and phone companies to find solutions to illegal robocalls, visit the Consumers Union website. There's a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. If you go there, you can read the suggestions for fighting the scourge and sign a petition calling for action. When you go outside the house, look up. Chances are pretty good you'll see a camera. Many intersections have cameras. Gas stations and stores have cameras inside and out. When you use an ATM to get money or make a deposit, you are probably on camera. In the computer realm, we often talk about security versus ease of use. Improve security and the hardware or software will be harder to use. Improve ease of use and you'll doubtless open some security holes. The situation seems similar with surveillance cameras. Consider the Boston Marathon bombing. Surveillance cameras from businesses were useful in helping police identify the bombers. But there is another side. New York attorney Yoni Loveritz says that he has concerns about civil liberties issues, even as he acknowledges some of the advantages that all-seeing cameras provide. It's great for law enforcement, Leverett says, but it infringes on our rights to be free from unlawful searches and seizures under the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. It is virtually impossible to be stealthy these days. If you carry a smartphone, it's constantly checking in with cell towers so that it knows where you are. If you're in an area where toll roads use rapid pass systems, your presence will be noted every time your pass is used. Some police departments have cruiser-mounted cameras that read license plates. These are great for identifying stolen cars, but again, there's a trade-off. Leverett puts it this way. You should be able to travel around the country without being watched every step of the way. But these days, it seems like you can't sneeze without being on camera. Well, in fact, you can sneeze without being on camera, but possibly only if you do it at home, inside. Clearly, all of these cameras are not going to be removed. There are simply so many of them, and they're owned by so many people and organizations, government agencies, businesses, individuals. It's a situation that doesn't have any clear-cut right or wrong side. For example, the cameras give police extra sets of eyes. Turn on the evening news and it's not unusual to see a report of a video with a crook holding up a bank or a convenience store. The Columbus Police Department frequently posts still images of crooks caught in the act and then asks for assistance in identifying them. It's a far better method than the old way of releasing a description or a sketch based on information from witnesses. But do all these cameras make us safer? Leverett isn't so sure. The cameras do catch criminal activities. But do they deter crime by making it easier for the police to identify the criminal? It's hard to make that argument, considering that crime still happens in places where the person has to know they are being videotaped. Because of cameras, police don't have to be everywhere. Red light cameras, although they are not currently permitted in Ohio, and some of the companies that sell the devices have gotten into trouble because of unethical behavior, well-placed and well-maintained red light cameras could make drivers think twice before blasting through a red light. The trouble is, most of the cameras aren't well-placed and well-maintained. 
Many of them are more about generating money than about creating safety. Surveillance cameras give investigators a great tool when a crime is committed, Leverett says. But the risk is that as we give up a measure of privacy, it's turning the country into something the founders didn't want. Well, I have to wonder, would the founders have wanted spare parts? It's only on the website. This week, Malwarebytes comes to the Mac and just in time because more crooks are targeting Macs. Toyota wants to connect your car to everything, and the company has a new division that's working on it. And NASA's live streaming of the recent solar eclipse was a record breaker for internet streaming. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.